Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the Sunday, May 2nd episode of Poets and Muses, where we chat with poets about their inspirations. I'm your host, Imogen A-Rate. You can find us at poetsandmuses.com, as well as on Instagram and Twitter under Poets and Muses. You can also subscribe to our weekly newsletter at poetsandmuses.com. Now, in addition to the Poets and Muses website, you can listen to the Poets and Muses podcasts on your preferred podcast platforms, including Apple and Google Podcasts, as well as on Spotify. Since the end of 2018, we have brought to you over 110 poets from 11 countries on five continents. And we hope to continue to do that with your support. And you can do that by going to poetsandmuses.com forward slash donate and donate via either PayPal or your preferred credit cards. With us today is Clementine Awokolo Burnley, with whom I will be discussing her poem, Ask Mrs. Manners About Roma Children, and my poem, MMIWG 2020. Before we do that, however, I'm going to go over some virtual poetry events taking place during the week of May 3rd. On Monday, May 3rd, from 7.30 to 8.30 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time, the Word Works and the Writer Center will be hosting their Cafe Muse featuring David Baker and Carl Phillips. You can find out more information at writer.org forward slash reading hyphen events. Again, that's writer.org forward slash reading hyphen events. From 8 p.m. Central Daylight Time, Frizzy Productions will be hosting his Poets Playground Replay Clean Open Mic via Instagram Live at poets underscore playground underscore. Again, that's at poets underscore playground underscore. From 7 to 8.30 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time, the Los Angeles Poets Society will be hosting their Meditation Monday writing workshop with Alex Petunia. You can find out more information at The Poetic Petunia on Instagram. Again, that's at The Poetic Petunia on Instagram. On Tuesday, May 4th, from 3 to 5 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time, Urban War NYC will be hosting their first draft open mic for those between the ages of 13 and 23. It's a virtual writing workshop and open mic series facilitated by Roya Marsh. You can find out more information and register at urbanwordnyc.org forward slash first draft. From 7 to 8 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time, City of Asylum will be hosting their All Pittsburghers Are Poets Youth to the Front reading. You can find out more information at cityofasylum.org. Again, that's at cityofasylum.org. From 9 p.m. Central Daylight Time, Frizzy Productions will be hosting his Poets Playground We Play Dirty open mic via Instagram Live. Again, at poets underscore playground underscore. On Wednesday, May 5th, from 6 p.m. Amsterdam time, Word Up Amsterdam will be hosting their Inspiration Factory writing workshop by Janice. You can find out more information and register at wordupamsterdam.weebly.com forward slash workshops.html. Again, that's at wordupamsterdam.weebly.com forward slash workshops.html. From 7 to 8.30 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time, Kaveh Kanam Poets will be hosting their first books 
Desiree C. Bailey, and Arcellus Germay. You can find out more information and register at caveconumpoets.org forward slash event. Again, that's at caveconumpoets.org forward slash event. From 5 to 7 p.m. Mountain Standard Time, Narrative Medicine at the University of Arizona's College of Medicine, Phoenix, will be hosting their annual chart celebration with a keynote from Rosemary Dombrowski, the Phoenix Poet Laureate. You can find out more information and register at poetsandmuses.com forward slash events. Again, that's at poetsandmuses.com forward slash events. From 8 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time, Beyond Baroque Library Arts will be hosting their poetry workshop with Beth Ruscio. You can find out more information at beyondbaroque.org forward slash free underscore workshops html. Again, that's beyondbaroque.org forward slash free underscore workshops html. On Thursday, May 6th from 9 p.m. Paris time, Paris Lit Up will be hosting their open mic and you can find out more information at parislitup.com forward slash open hyphen mic. Again, that's parislitup.com forward slash open hyphen mic. From 5.20 to 6.55 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time, UC Santa Cruz will be hosting The Words Between Us, featuring the goddess Mimi, Muriel Lung, and Toya Groves. You can find out more information and register at The Goddess Mimi on Instagram. Again, that's The Goddess Mimi on Instagram. From 6 to 8 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time, Museum of the African Diaspora will be hosting their open mic night, this time featuring Dante Clark. You can find out more information and register at moadsf.org forward slash calendar. Again, that's moadsf.org forward slash calendar. From 7 to 8 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time, Beyond Baroque Literary Arts will be hosting their Beyond This Moment, a Beyond Baroque virtual benefit. You can find out more information and register at beyondbaroque.org forward slash calendar. Again, that's beyondbaroque.org forward slash calendar. On Friday, May 7th, from 11 a.m. to 12.30 p.m. British time, Poetry LGBT will be hosting their Speak Your Truth writing workshop. You can find out more information and register by emailing the host Andrina Leanne at survivor.andrina.leanne on Instagram. That's survivor.andrina.leanne on Instagram. Andrina is spelled A-N-D-R-E-E-N-A. Leanne is spelled L-E-E-A-N-N-E. From 7 p.m. West Africa time, Graciano and Warham will be hosting his Coronaverses open mic via Instagram Live at Graciano and Warham. That's G-R-A-C-I-A-N-O-E-N-W-E-R-E-M. Again, that's G-R-A-C-I-A-N-O-E-N-W-E-R-E-M. On Saturday, May 8th, from 8 to 9.30 p.m. Indian Standard Time, our past poet guest Umesh Mohikar will be hosting his weekly Let's Unmesh Life open mic. 
You can find out more information and register at Umesh Mohikar on Instagram. Again, that's at Umesh Mohikar on Instagram. That's U-N-M-E-S-H-M-O-N-H-I-T-K-A-R. Again, that's at U-N-M-E-S-H-M-O-H-I-T-K-A-R. From 10 a.m. to 12 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time, the Root Slam will be hosting their virtual writing workshop, this time for Black writers 18 plus only. You can find out more information and register at rootslam.org forward slash calendar. Again, that's rootslam.org forward slash calendar. On Sunday, May 9th, from 4.45 to 7 p.m. British time, Andrina and G-Joy will be hosting their Adult Survivors Open Mic. You can find out more information at Adult Survivors Open Mic on Instagram. Again, that's Adult Survivors Open Mic on Instagram. From 6 p.m. British time, the Runcible Spoon will be hosting their open mic featuring our past poet guest Jeff Cottrell and Skylar J. Winter. You can find out more information at facebook.com forward slash events forward slash 153-997-519-286-3073. Again, that's at facebook.com forward slash events forward slash 153-997-519-286-3073. And now let us welcome our poet guest of the week, Clementine Iwokolo Burnley. Hi, Clementine. Thank you very much for coming onto Poets and Muses and bringing with you your poem, Ask Mrs. Manners About Roma Children. Before we get into that, I would love for you to tell us a little bit about yourself. I'm a poet who has been active as a writer only really for the last seven or eight years, mm. I write, of course, poetry, mm-hmm. have experimented in the spectrum between prose poetry and flash fiction. Mm. I like experimental works, mm-hmm. and I like to experiment myself as a writer, so I'm always learning, mm. hopefully always growing. Mm. I'm a feminist and uh, have been politically active, more in movement building mm-hmm. um, than in frontline activism for 15 or 20 years now. Mm. My real sort of core interest, what makes me feel alive, mm-hmm. is looking at human relationship, really looking at where we connect to each other. Mm-hmm. Sometimes that comes through in my poetry. Yeah. And it's invigorating and kind of infuses it with resilience. Um, mm-hmm. And sometimes I can't find that so much. So, mm. yeah, that's me. I feel like certainly the poem that you brought with you today shows that side of your work. Since you transitioned into writing eight years ago, if you can tell mm-hmm. us when you began writing poetry. My very first poem. I have to confess, I wrote at age eight. And I know that exactly because my father had just retired and we had moved back to 
my parents' hometown. Mm. And I got up in the morning, one mm-hmm. morning, in my new bunk bed and wrote this poem, quite a long poem, which I then showed to my mother, who is an English literature, or was, should I say, an mm. English literature teacher and teacher trainer, but also an aspiring writer herself. Mm. And I showed her this poem, which she was very positive about. Mm. But when I think about it now, I think she she was obviously a mother <laughs> and a teacher and encouraging me as well. Mm-hmm. So that would have been my first poem. But then there were many years in between mm. before I came back to poetry. Okay, okay. Do you remember what the poem was about? It is imprinted on my mind, mm. actually, although I don't have a copy. I think that when I look at it now, it's part of my process is mm. that I have a dreaming process and I pay attention to my dreaming process because mm. the people around me, mostly the women around me, that was a very important morning ritual was to tell them what I had dreamed. Mm. And for some reason, I wrote a poem about, I think it was a Pan-African poem because it was about the flag. You know, mm. It was the flag of a united Africa somehow and I when I think about it think that um, I had just started morning assembly at school and I think that we sang the national anthem at school Mm -hmm. and so this was me recomposing this anthem with my own words for my mother oh wow I have not done such a thing again but um, yeah I remember it quite well I don't think it was a very good poem but (laughs) I am really curious to find out why an eight-year-old, like what would spur an eight-year-old to write something as serious as a national anthem or a a pan-African, I guess, a continental anthem. Yes, it's a question for me as well. And I have seen that come up because I think it has to do with my dreaming process as well, probably as the influences I had from my parents, because my mother was a very, very active politician, um, Mm. and she was a feminist as well, although she didn't describe herself as such. Mm. And her core area was social welfare and community development. Mm. I think my father was the Pan-Africanist, really. And these two people had grown up in a still colonial country, Mm. as part of the eastern region of Nigeria. And so the statehood in the 70s and 80s, these countries were still young. They were still emerging from the independence Mm. movements in Africa of the 60s. And so I think that would have been a topic in our house quite often. Mm. So I think probably I chose a field that I thought my parents would approve of. Mm. I think it's really that simple. Right, right. Yeah, that's fascinating. Thank you so much for enlightening us. I I always wonder when poets tell me about their first poem, especially when they're at a young age, and it is about something that's a very serious topic that's very mature for children that young. So thank you very much for enlightening us. And now it's probably a good time for you to read your poem for us then we can discuss it. Okay, I will. 
So the title of this poem, as you've already said, is Ask Mrs. Manners about Romya children. Can I eat ice cream if I think about Romya children drowning? Can I sell ice cream and think about Romya children drowning? Can I swim from a beach where Romya children have drowned? Should I use sunblock after Romya children drown or before? Whose striped green towels are tossed over the Romya children? What do the other children dig up with their yellow plastic spades before the hearse comes? Thank you. This poem, despite how short it is, leaves quite an impression on the reader, partly because of the contrast between innocent things, especially things that children do, and the Roma children who have died. Is this based on a real incident that happened? It is, actually. Mm. I used to live in Italy, and I had left, actually, some years before, when by some random chance I happened on a news report. I was struck by it because I was no longer in Italy at the time. It was 2008. Mm. It was two girls. Mm. The thing that was so astonishing was, in a way, it was a logical consequence of the kind of language that had been used about the Roma and Sinti minority mm -hmm. in Italy. Mm -hmm. I mean, all across Europe anyway, but this particular case mm. was in Italy. Mm -hmm. Because they are a very, very marginalized group of people, mm -hmm. and as Europe-wide and perhaps worldwide are not given the dignity of either their individual personal names or their collective name, so they would, in scare quotes, be in Italy called what we in English would say gypsy. Mm -hmm. Berlusconi's government at the time, which was a right-wing government, yeah. of course, as with most of the governments, in order to become popular, had consistently demonized and dehumanized all marginalized groups, all racial and ethnic cultural minorities. But against the Romnia, it was particularly strong. So until now, they are still fingerprinting from mm. um, their children. Oh. And I was struck by it also because of the idea of children being innocent, mm -hmm. of them just being children. Mm. And when I was writing the poem, I struggled a lot about naming or not naming these children. And I went in the end with not naming them because somehow I felt as if it would be a further indignity to name them in such an unbearable poem. I couldn't actually write it longer. Mm -hmm. I usually write longer works, mm -hmm. but I found it an unbearable poem to write, and so I stopped quite quickly. Mm -hmm. um, when I did the research, I realized that it's a phenomenon, probably worldwide, but certainly Europe-wide. I found several cases where 
people on these beaches would be initially a little curious, but very quickly they would go back to their normal activities. Mm. And so even the children who played just a few feet away Mm -hmm. uh, did not find it strange that there should be a 14-year-old and a 16-year-old stretched out under beach towels. Just before that, they'd been selling trinkets Mm -hmm. at the beach. And this is also very normal that there are people who walk along and who pedal small things Mm -hmm. to people who are sunbathing. So there's very clearly a difference between people who can afford to pay for to rent a a space with an umbrella Mm -hmm. and lie there and have other people, usually immigrants, come along and give them massages or sell them sunglasses. Mm -hmm. And so really for me, it was a very, very clear distinction that the people on the beach made between whose death could be ignored and whose death could not. Because I could not imagine that if a human being was in that situation at the end of their life, that the crowd around them would treat their death with such indifference. Mm. So for me, it was a clear distinction between who is considered human and who is considered non mm. yeah. This happened in 2008. I saw this report in 2014, and I didn't write. I wrote then a nonfiction piece about it, mm-hmm. but I didn't write a poem until very recently. I think I wrote it the week before I sent it to you. And the third thing which occurred to me Mm -hmm. um, while I was writing it, when I looked at how similar drownings had occurred, because of course the major crisis off the coast of Italy in the Mediterranean now, which is called a migration crisis for Europe, Mm -hmm. but which is really mass death in the Mediterranean, Mm -hmm. is of um, people in small boats being denied sea rescue, which is an international obligation, Mm -hmm. by Europe, actually, by the agencies which are in charge of the Coast Guard services and uh, Frontex, the European border agency. So it was these things which I was thinking about, really, that was the sort of soil in my mind of which this uh, poem came. Right, right. Yeah, when I first read your poem, uh, despite knowing uh, some of the discrimination that the Roma has faced, for instance, I, I don't think a lot of people know that they were also put in concentration camps during World War II, uh, during the Holocaust, and they were killed by the thousands. I, I don't think enough people know know that fact. And as you said, throughout Europe, they've been discriminated against and even now, it's one of the things that I remember, I think the first time I was about to go to Paris, someone I knew, well, who lives a good chunk of time in Europe, has said to me, be careful of the gypsies. That's what she yes. said. Um, and I have had unpleasant encounters. At the same time, you always wonder about cause and effect. And I also wonder about, since this is an area of interest for you as well, how people interact with each other, especially people who live fundamentally different lifestyles, because the Roma are a migratory people. And we, as a species overall, majority of us live in a much more sedentary 
lifestyle in modern days. And I think the Roma and how they are being treated, the fundamental lifestyle differences plays a part to it. The fact that they, at least according to Wikipedia, originally they came from India. And I remember reading similar clashes between peoples who are sedentary and people who are migratory or more migratory or maybe um, herding communities versus farming communities in sub-Saharan African countries. Sometimes the clashes come with grazing rights and such. So I wonder if that's something that's come up in your research. That's very interesting points. So of course, the people who are generally known as Roma are actually different groups Mm -hmm. uh, because the names which they are called are definitions from the outside. Mm. I recently was thinking about this concept of what people are actually called. Mm. And in Nigeria, for instance, the Yoruba, who are one of the three largest groups Mm -hmm. in Nigeria, that name is a name which was given to them by another group of people outside their territory. And it simply means those people. Oh, wow. What happened is that during the colonial time, the British fixed this name mm. for a number of very, very disparate people living within a particular territory. Mm-hmm. And because this was done by an external force, mm-hmm. uh, people were educated into thinking of themselves as belonging to that identity. So it, it's partly, not entirely, partly a created identity. And what the people who are political activists within the Roma and Sinti communities have said is that they've asked not to be called, for instance, gypsies, and they've pointed out that it's a really small minority who still are migratory, mm-hmm. and that, in fact, they have been settled in European countries for thousands of years. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... What they're trying to do in Italy is make them stateless because they are Italian. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a question, I think, as the nation state forms itself, it tries to form itself along ethnic lines. Mm. And so, of course, European ethnicity is thought to be a white ethnicity. Yeah. And it's not constituted as racial, but in fact, it's thought of as racial. And they just happen to be um, one of the groups that's being used to um, maintain the stability of the majority identity. I think, of course, there are individuals who clash with each other. But if I have an experience which is difficult with a white European, Mm -hmm. I'm not allowed to think that it's logical to link that um, experience unless it's direct racial discrimination, mm-hmm. I normally would not see the race of somebody who acts against society being mentioned in connection with what they've done. Because mm-hmm. it's not thought that their race is relevant to them behaving badly. And, and this is the thing that you notice is that these minorities are being racialized. Mm-hmm. So they are being held to represent mm-hmm. their race Mm-hmm. while they are committing individual acts. 
and with the Roma as well, the official and illegal force of the state is imposed upon them. Mm. That's what strikes me is that once they've been dehumanized in that way, it is then considered that they are not uh, subject to the same rules of behavior as everybody else. That's why it was quite okay. The children on that beach saw that it was quite okay not to care mm. that two young girls were lying there. And I remember from my personal experience on a beach as well, seeing a body wrapped up underneath a kind of a beach pedalo, I think it was, just covered up there waiting. And I was a bit shocked because I was walking along with my daughter and I was trying to understand if that was a body that I wasn't seeing. Mm -hmm. um, and my mind refused to accept it, but I could not think of what else it would be. Mm. Yeah. So knowing that there are lots and lots of boats, dinghies, small boats out there in the Mediterranean, which are not being rescued when they are going down, knowing that there are thousands of people dying in the Mediterranean, I am struck by the fact that if you have a conflict between one group and another group over grazing because cows go into a farm and the farmer's family comes out and with a stick tries to drive the cows away and then maybe somebody has a weapon. This is a regular problem in rural areas. Mm -hmm. But in Europe, where there are not these land use conflicts and where it is European states which are not protecting their citizens, yeah, it really is. And I think as an American thinking of Europe, there is this idea, especially as a liberal American thinking of Europe, there is an idea that Europe overall is much more liberal. Uh, obviously, over the past 10 years, it has become or dragged towards the more right wing, more extremist, just as we see here in the U.S. as well. I think it's a very important point and that you make about Italy and Italian citizenship because I think even as as of now, Italian citizenship is through blood right, um, and marriage. I know of stories of Eastern Europeans who've been in Italy for generations who are not allowed to be called Italian, who cannot obtain that citizenship because of how it's defined, which is... Also interesting because it goes back to this idea of ethno-nationalism that you touched on. It is an important point. I think that now the right to citizenship is the kind of primary dividing line. Mm. Because, of course, the concept of the nation-state is of a state that's ruled by law and a state which protects certain rights mm -hmm. of its citizens in exchange for their loyalty and their participation mm -hmm. in, in the framework that the state establish, establishes. And everybody who falls outside the protection of the state has to manage for themselves. So somehow the rights that we are led to think about as natural rights belonging to all human beings end up actually being reserved for 
citizens, but not just citizens, citizens of particular states. Right. And perhaps uh, 200 years ago when nation states came into existence as very young mm-hmm. ideas also, mm-hmm. perhaps most people did travel then. But today, people are much more mobile. And so if your rights are sort of, you mentioned blood, and so depending on where you're born and depending on who you're genetically related to, randomly, you have these rights. So for people who already have these rights, to have those rights taken away, I think, is quite frightening. Yeah, yeah. And I think this idea of um, natural rights is not believed or maybe not believe as firmly, globally speaking. I think with a body, the existence of a body like UN, for instance, member states may sign on to pieces of paper that um, declare certain natural rights, but it is also a very modern concept that, or one that we think more about on a larger, massive basis to acknowledge I, I don't think it's something that is as recognized even now. And, and so you do see the fluctuation of application depending on nation, depending on state or regions within nations as well. Um, this idea of, and also there are the unstated and the explicitly stated, and people don't necessarily abide by the explicitly stated and go with what they're brought up with. They fall back on it almost on instinct as well. I also find it very ironic, especially given the current topic that we're talking about, that you know there are currently Italian towns that are desperate for people to come and repopulate. Because I think Italy is one of those countries that has a falling birth rate. Uh, along with many of Western European countries, and also yes. because there's a flight from rural areas into more populated city areas. Mm-hmm. So there's this irony of abandoned towns, abandoned houses that are going for very cheap, cheaply, right? At the same time, along Italian borders, especially bordering the sea, but also land borders, there are these strict restrictions against refugees coming in. And I hate the word migrant because I feel like it's a term that's been cleaned to help people avoid thinking about those who come in, especially on those dinghies, that they're forced to come in because they have to flee. They have no choice but to flee where they would prefer to stay if they could. Yes, yes. That's really important. Yeah. Sorry. No, no, I, 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 you know, it's, I think we agree on this point in that, and I remember the first time I read it in a large newspaper in the U.S., the New York Times, which has, it's, has enormous influence over especially more elite liberal crowd. And it really just angered me so much that they decided to use their platform to proliferate this particular term. And I really can't stand the idea that people throw the term migrant around. And even even human rights organizations now have taken up the term. 
because it just sanitizes the atrocities that people have to face in order to induce them to leave their homes. Yes. Yeah. You probably have read or heard or Sanchiri read a poem where this line has been quoted over and over again where she says, no one leaves home unless home is the mouth of a shark. No one puts their, their child into a boat unless the water is safer than the land. Yeah. That really struck me, that people don't leave home if they can, usually. Yeah, yeah. I think from the individual to the collective, this is overwhelmingly true. And I think for people who have experienced things like domestic violence or childhood trauma, uh, childhood abuse, there is a, a equivalence there where you feel like the people that you thought you could trust that could provide you with this stability are actually not those people and that you need to seek your sanctuary elsewhere. And, you know, refugees is a collective outcome of something like that, but more on a statewide level. And, and it just boggles the mind that we, as 21st century humans, still do not understand how our modern world is formed by these migrations. While it's true that we didn't have planes and fast vessels to bring us to places of furthest end of the world from where we originated in the fastest way as possible, you know, thousands of years ago. The fact is, we always migrated. This is how the hum human world has, you know, taken the shape that it has. And it just drives me crazy that people don't, A, realize that and don't think about that fact. Well, there is a continuous manipulation going on of uh, information and it's shaping the way that we come to see the world as a collective as well. And I suppose that it helps us to justify to ourselves why we put up with certain things and find other things intolerable. Mm. Yeah. I think so as well. And I also think, again, going back to something I've said over and over again, is that we as a species have certain limitations that we both need to acknowledge and address. And that is our incapacity to pay attention to everything. At the same time, we have mental limits. Um, and, and so I think that underlying human condition or I guess a living species condition probably also makes it um, a sort of a uphill fight to think of other human beings that we don't necessarily come across that often in an inclusive term or even other planetary species in a more inclusive term and seeing the bigger picture. So that's definitely something that we always have to fight against. And it's a constant struggle, especially when a lot of us are not even aware of the problem. And I think on some level, I definitely agree that it is manipulated to keep us um, in that sort of ignorant state for the gain of a few. 
who benefit from that ignorance. It's interesting that you say that because you mentioned two things that are really relevant. One, these mountain villages which are being abandoned because the people are just not able to live in them all year round in the mountains of Italy and the rural areas as people move to the city because young people don't find it so interesting to farm anymore or have a quiet life in the villages. And actually in Italy, there is the reverse trend that um, these villages have welcomed refugees with open arms, that the villages are looking quite different. Several villages in Italy are looking quite different. Mm -hmm. There are laws which permit farmers access to public land mm. so that if they, refugees move to these villages, they can farm. And there are really successful stories mm -hmm. of people from the, for instance, an Ethiopian woman who became a hugely successful goat farmer. Mm. 180 goats she had oh, wow. um, in a small Ital uh, Italian mountain village. And of course, the reason I know about this story is because the local people, the local activists there, they raised quite a stink about it. The mayor <laughs> of that town was absolutely shocked. He really very, very publicly condemned this widespread attitude. I think the Pope also wrote something about it. So on the ground, of course, there is action and counteraction. Mm. It's not at all as if there is a monolith, mm -hmm. as if Italy is a monolith. Right. There are trends, of course, all across the world of quite harsh authoritarian force using politics. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, there's also um, the opposite Mm -hmm. of solidarity, of resilience, of love. Mm. You know? yeah. And it's a question of, I think, on the ground, people who share an opinion and are like-minded simply continue to act for their values. Yeah, yeah. I, I think especially as when people leave or when people come back and bring ideas from the outside to smaller, insular, more insular worlds, there is a feeling of threat, almost a mental uh, existential threat of one's life um, going to change irrevocably. And I can understand how that would shape people, especially when people think in terms of their own lifetimes rather than throughout human history or on millennia terms. And I can empathize with those people who think, oh my God, you know, our little village, our way of life, it's always the way of life, right? Uh, despite the fact that the way of life is probably very modern. Some of the, you know, the, these beautiful cuisines that we associate with Italy has a lot to do with the new world tomatoes for instance without the new world <laughs> you know one thing that's very associated with italy would not uh you know be in existence pasta is from a different again from a different culture from china imported so again a lot of things that shape the modern world actually are brought from elsewhere are brought through this 
almost like an exchange of life, lifeblood, but culture uh, through yeah. human migration. And yeah. again, I, I always think of people who are more conservative, who are like, oh, but our way of life, right? And both sides are saying this, our way of life. Um, but they mean quite different things. And it's always interesting to look at the evidence sort of behind the, these sayings and wonder, what are we actually protecting? What are we trying to protect? And how much are we willing to hurt other people in order to protect that? To me, both the means and the end are important. And going back to your poem, the idea that on the relatively small scale of just ignoring and going about our own business on the beach when there are people who have died who was just alive before because of these definitions of who, quote-unquote, we are, really makes a huge difference of how we treat each other as human beings. What I thought is, because you raised that point yourself, is that it's a shared feature mm -hmm. of human beings, is to have a little box inside our heads and to tick off who we can relate to mm -hmm. and who we can't relate to, mm -hmm. you know. And that happens with patriarchy, mm -hmm. um, that violence that happens inside the home mm -hmm. is considered somehow not the business of the state. Mm -hmm. Because it's happening almost, um, that was the split between the domestic and the public sphere. Mm -hmm. And the adults, certainly the head of the family, was uh, presumed to know what was good for all the people in the household. That's, I think, a failure also to attribute humanity to mm. everybody in the household, as you mentioned. And then people that we end up shutting away in institutions, people with mental health problems. So it is something which we're all prone to do. It just depends on which criteria we use to decide that this person is going to not belong to the group of people I can relate to. And I guess that there's something to do with intolerance there. As you've said, something to do with fear. But also it's in terms of what we're doing to the planet, Mm -hmm. where we've decided somehow that we are the apex predator mm -hmm. and that we are entitled to just wipe out other species mm. because they're not human. Mm. There is definitely this idea of a hierarchy. And, you know, we as human beings obviously favor our own species over other species. And we use whatever rationalization we can come up with, our minds can come up with, and imperfect knowledge that sciences can come up with at the time. So I think for some people that hierarchy is changing the idea of changing to food web rather than a food pyramid, for instance, helps change that idea to put uh, human beings not in the center or at the top, but rather as a part of this redefining of who we are especially given our newer understanding and our continual search for understanding of how we relate, what part we play 
on our planet and also in, in terms of the universe, the larger universe, because, you know, we're a tiny, tiny part. And then I think this hierarchy is, you know, going back to what we talked about before this, that allows us to treat people differently and allow us to exploit or certain people, especially those in power who want to exploit that weakness to, for instance, take up an individual fight or individual cases of sedentary farmers versus herders uh, in perhaps a, a, a sub-Saharan African country and utilize in order for their own political gain. And the larger consequence is communal divides that break down into conflicts that leads to genocidal actions. And I think that is something that we see as well in the U.S. that, again, because of our continual adherence to old definitions are not being addressed, which is why I send you the poem uh, I wrote, which is called MMIWG 2020. So I'm going to read that and then we can talk about it. Dresses dance in the wind, bidding farewell to the bodies, no longer centering their enveloping embrace. A Morse code supplicating the silence a noisy universe offers anguished nations, losing one sister after another needing answers and preventions missing from clotheslines, fiber optic lifelines connecting emptied dresses whose red now a reminder of derogatory references, turning deadly in dehumanizing efficacy, still pushing against enduring forces toward erasure, now a reminiscence of the vibrancy that imbued their crisscrossed weavings. Thank you, Imogen. That's such a powerful poem. Thank you. I read it several times, and apart from being quite taken by this really powerful circling around this image of dresses that have been emptied of bodies, that was very much in my mind mm. um, as I read this dance of presence and absence. So my first question to since the way that you execute this is so seamless in terms of the two ideas which rub up against it, the idea of communication, a communication which is vast in scope because it's really the whole universe, countries and individuals together. How did you settle on the two primary images that rub up against each other in this poem. The dresses and the communication? The dresses and the Morse code somehow. Ah, okay. So I wish uh, these were my original ideas. The fact is, uh, MMIWG means Missing and Murder Indigenous Women and Girls. And 2020 was obviously last year. So I wrote this in commemoration for May 5th, which is the day on which indigenous nations and 
allies try to bring attention to the fact that there are, are a outsized number of missing and murdered indigenous women and children that are not getting enough attention because they're not getting enough attention. The resources are not spent to A, count uh, exactly how many are missing, and B, to put efforts into prevention of what's happening. And obviously, in, as any case like this, those who are more marginalized tends to be um, indigenous peoples of a darker color and also those who are non-binary people. Um, so yes. there unfortunately is a hierarchy um, in that as well. Red dresses is used to commemorate this and it started with, I believe, a Canadian indigenous female identifying person, artist, who decided to use the red, which I believe is a uh, symbol of courage. You know, as red is symbolized all over the world as, uh, you know, something that's uh, life force. And so she started using the red. The dress comes from that, and it's become very popular as a symbol for that, and, and people dress in red uh, in order to commemorate that day, May 5th. And Morse code, I don't know if you know, but during World War II, the U.S. government leveraged a diverse, but also Navajo nation language, Diné Biza, especially is well known for that, uh, use their language as a unbreakable code to, I, I think, complement Morse code, um, you know, in order to defeat the Axis powers. So that's where the Morse code concept comes in, even though it's not Morse code. I, I had thought when I first wrote this poem that it has supplanted Morse code, but when, in fact, it did not. But I left to ask Morse code because it just sounded better and it's a more familiar concept for people to grab onto. So those are the where the two come from. That's fascinating. Somehow there is the history of the whole nation, I think, in that. And it made me think about, again, the distinction between indigenous people and their loss of territory and their loss of rights. Mm -hmm. The First Nations actually, and what that really means. So could you share a bit more about, of course, this invisible, it's not just people being wiped out, but it's particularly being people, as you've said, of a particular uh, gender, feminine identifying people or non-binary people. Can you share a little bit why you think this is being accepted and why this kind of trauma is practically invisible. So um, I had mentioned when we were talking about your poem about the cause and effect a little bit. And I think this, again, is people have a tendency of using effect to deduce cause. And because life doesn't work the way human minds work, <laughs> people will get things wrong. So from what I've read of the cases, and I, I, I'm not an expert on this at all, is that because of, of the way that indigenous peoples have been marginalized, 
their land being taken away, um, their culture being erased, actively erased by placing them in these quote-unquote schools where they were beaten or, or worse for speaking their language languages. Their hair was cut uh, to quote-unquote civilize them. There is a famous saying that says, kill the Indian, not the man, uh, which is behind these boarding schools that are more recognized in Canada than in the U.S. These atrocities are, were committed that would fit into the U.N.'s definition of genocide. Because of these transgenerational traumas, some indigenous uh, people are very much affected by uh, psychologically and in coping, uh, perhaps they uh, turn to substance abuse or because their way of life no longer are in existence and many are forced to live on reservations where the infrastructure really doesn't exist very much, though they're being built up now a little bit more. You see, I don't know if you saw in the news of how COVID has dramatically, lopsidedly affected, decimated the indigenous population over the past year, as well as other peoples of color, because of this lack of infrastructure. And the same lack of infrastructure means that a lot of people turn to societally unaccepted ways of earning a living. Some become sex workers. And just historically speaking, sex workers tend to be one of the most neglected populations in, in any culture. I mean, even, even when you think of the Dutch and how their tolerance attitude or the association of a tolerant attitude toward sex workers in the red light district in Amsterdam, for instance, I mean, I found out that they were having trouble obtaining loans to buy real estate, buy houses. So they, there is still discrimination. Now, going back to the indigenous nations where the people are already facing discrimination, and then add on top of that the socially unacceptable behavior of uh, sex work and substance abuse that are brought upon by these transgenerational traumas, it's very easy for them to become uh, further marginalized and therefore targets for predators within, you know, human population uh, become victims of domestic abuse as well as physical abuse from both within and outside the community as well. But I think the MMIWG movement is more pointing towards, uh, it's both really, but they also point to how white men can get away with murdering indigenous women and girls, kidnap and disappear them for whatever reason. Uh, and this is not paid attention to. Um, and I think so the problem is very multi-layered as is the discrimination faced by the Roma in Europe. I hope that answers your question. It does, thank you. The two things I picked up, I mean, I picked up a lot out of what you said already, which I didn't know. First of all, you located these women and this social phenomenon very, very well in the historical and social context. And in the title, you talked about really writing this 
in response, and you mentioned the concept of allyship, which is something which occurred to me when I started to write, mm -hmm. was what was my position in speaking about people and about trauma mm -hmm. in a group of people where I didn't belong in terms of my identity. Did you go through any of that sort of process? And um, what are your thoughts on that? Share, please, with me your thoughts on what allies can do to support groups which are being marginalized in this way. I really appreciate you bringing up that point because it is exactly because of that share characteristic of our poems that I, I decided to sing you this particular poem because both of us are writing from a, a world where we were not born in, a society where we were not born in, but immigrated to, I guess, where we ourselves face discrimination, uh, a part of a larger marginalized group, but deciding to become allies, perhaps due to our own experience trauma, decided to become allies and bring attention to yet another group that's also facing a lot of discrimination, perhaps in ways that we don't as individuals face. It does make me a little bit, because of the prevalent talk of appropriation, right? I do think about that idea of talking about other people and how my writing about other people suffering a group to which I don't technically belong, how that could inadvertently have a negative effect, such as maybe kidnapping their narrative. And as artists, because we want to be heard as artists, how are we inadvertently, quote-unquote, using other people's uh, tragedies to whether we want it or not, pave the way to people paying attention to our own art. I, I want to bring attention to this, and I think me talking about it as an outsider because of the relationship I have with, uh, different relationship I have with greater society, perhaps people will listen to me, uh, certain segments of population will listen to me more than they're willing to listen to those who are more related to these victims of violence. And I think I write from that perspective. At the same time, I also think about, again, the inadvertent negative consequences of that and how we might be perpetuating cultural appropriation in some ways, especially if a poem like this, or many poems like this, because I write about a number of social issues that are not necessarily immediately related to my personal identity, identities. So yeah, I, I, I wonder how I play into the appropriation narrative. Um, so I am concerned about it. At the same time, I also think, again, it's about our own ability to broadcast certain ideas and without people relaying these message and seeing ourselves as relayers of these messages, what's the good and the bad.
does the good outweigh the bad? I don't I don't honestly know. And I think depending on who, which individual, uh, in my case, indigenous person you might ask, they might have a different opinion on that. Yeah. Thank you for that full answer. I could hear the grappling there, the very careful grappling with a sensitive area. And it feels very familiar to me mm -hmm. um, from my own process. For me, it's been and still is a conversation. Mm -hmm. So people come and speak to me on the basis of what I write and put out in the world. Mm -hmm. And I've learned a lot that way. Mm -hmm. And I'm always open to learn. So it's refreshing to have you be so open about your process. Yeah, um, I, I think we as artists have to think about, um, just people in general, have to think about why we do the things we do. We have to be almost brutally honest with ourselves because it's not always clear. I think even to ourselves especially if we don't think about it. I think we, we can easily fall into that savior complex. I'm not sure I'm not in that savior complex in, in the things that I do. And I, I think we it is a conversation that we should be having. Uh, at the same time, I think there are, again, inadvertent positive or or deliver positive effects of the savior complex, right? If it's a matter of managing it. How do we manage these different aspects that are linked so intricately one to the other and in a way move the world to a better place, albeit not, <laughs> not uniformly, not traveling in a uniform fashion. I find progress as a blobby kind of process where some things move forward other things stay behind and or you know kind of gelatinous like moving back and forth vibrating back and forth a little bit so um so in a way it's something that I want to be as honest with myself about as possible and and also be as transparent with people as possible because I find in doing this podcast, for instance, I have a very hard time convincing people of certain communities to trust me because I am an outsider and they don't know because they're so used to being used and abused, maybe not on an individual level, but on a cultural community level that they don't know whether or not I'm coming in just to do something for me where I could pat myself on the back and be like, oh, dear, dear, look at that. I was in, able to interview that person. Or do I truly care? Do I truly want to invest the time to learn their culture? Even though, to me, my intentions are there, I can't always carry out in my intention and actions, partly because, as I'm sure you can relate to this, because we're super busy as people. So it is an area that I've been, in many ways, um, forced to think about, as well as just um, also on my own initiative, want to think about. I have another point, actually, mm -hmm. which came to me when I was reading your poem. It reminded me of something that 
activists in Lebanon have also done. I don't know whether you are familiar with these activists who are campaigning about rape, mm-hmm. hung these wedding dresses, one for each day of the month. They hung them up from nooses, mm. and um, people were quite struck by these dresses swaying, mm. apparently, along the seafront. And I've seen that in China, mm. a group of activists marched in Beijing and they wore wedding dresses spattered with red paint. Mm. And that was uh, protesting violence against women. And somehow these two actions were so, um, for me, so visual mm. that I wanted to mention them to you and ask you what you thought of, of these things happening across the globe. I actually don't know about these two uh, movements. The one that I know of that involves wedding dresses is related. It's about forced child marriage. And it is done by an organization that I believe is based in New York that is trying to get people's attention about forced child marriages throughout the United States that, again, people are just not aware of. We don't think of the U.S. as a place where children are being forced into marriage, but it's actually legal and there are legal loopholes even if there are state laws that said, you know, uh, you have to be a certain age in order to be able to marry. And so it is also another form of violence against female identifying peoples. And it also uses wedding dresses. And I think the visual is incredibly important, both because I'm an artist and also because of this old adage of, you know, a picture is worth a thousand words, right? Because I think words somehow always have slightly different meaning to the individual who receive them. And so they can interpret it or they could rationalize certain words away. Whereas when you're seeing a visual so stark as these red dresses in my poem, for instance, the two girls in the beach, in contrast to the innocent child play or just daily happenings in your poem, and these wedding dresses in nooses or wedding dresses that are splattered with red paint. I think they have these lasting effect that words may not have because they reach a more visceral part of us or visceral reaction in us. And I think, in a way, it is turning the idea of populist rhetoric on its head to engage in our amygdala, the fear center, to engage in this sort of knee-jerk reaction that's emotional reaction. So it's using it for good rather than how populist leaders, uh, movements, use that to engender more violence. I think it's an important part of bringing these issues to attention. I like them. At the same time, I also think it could be executed very poorly. So careful thinking has to be go behind the concept. Also, 
it speaks volumes, right, when you're talking about Chinese women in white wedding dresses splattered with paint. I, I assume they're white dresses. They're white, yes. Right, which is, ironically, in East Asian culture, white is seen as a mourning color. White is something that you wear to mourn the dead. So, you know, the fact that so many East Asian women now use white as, you know, adopting these Western symbols of innocence and purity and whatnot has its own layering of cultural effects. And I would love to talk with an activist in that movement to understand why they decided to use white dresses rather than the more traditional red and Chinese weddings. This is a very interesting point. And as a side note, in the Fulani culture, which my ancestors on my mother's side are from, Mm -hmm. um, they use white as well um, for mourning. It's Mm -hmm. a color for ghosts, really. Mm -hmm. Um, So I thought that was an interesting resonance. Mm. And also the idea of these artistic media and tools that we use being also subject to misuse. Mm-hmm. I like the nuances in that. Thank you. This is something as an activist, I imagine, and an artist that you also think about as well in terms of the weight and the influence and also the inadvertent effects of the words, the imageries that they create. Indeed, I do. Yes. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And I really appreciate that, you know, speaking with someone who is as interested in nuance as um, I am. And I so appreciate the time that I've spent with you talking about both of our poems, despite the fact that I still have many questions for you. But um, <laughs> unfortunately, uh, we do have to come to a conclusion, at least in terms of the this episode. But before I let you go, I would love for you to tell us if you have any favorite virtual readings, also how people can follow you online. Thanks a lot. Um, I also am immensely inspired and pleased to have had this deep exploration Thank with you. you. I felt very safely held somehow in a space uh, to talk about things which are not the easiest. Mm. Um, of things to talk about. In terms of online stuff that I'm doing at the moment, there is my website, but I'm also on Twitter mm-hmm. um, under the handle The Colonial Heart, and I'm on Instagram. I'm not hugely active on Instagram, but I mm-hmm. do have an Instagram um, account mm-hmm. at Iwokila. And so, yeah, just in any of these um, online social media forums, they could just check me out. Great. What is Always your... happy to talk. Wonderful. I'm so glad you're open to people contacting you. What is your website's address? It's my name, clementinebirdley.com. Okay, okay. And can you spell the Instagram handle, please? E-W-O-K-I-L-A. Okay, great. Well, thank you again 
for taking time to talk with me. I am so um, glad to hear that you felt safely held. I really appreciate that feedback. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, all the best with the podcast. And uh, yeah. Thank you. As always, you can find us at poetsandmuses.com as well as on Instagram and Twitter under Poets and Muses. You can also subscribe to our weekly newsletter at poetsandmuses.com. In addition, you can now listen to the Poets and Muses podcast on your preferred podcast platforms, including Apple and Google Podcasts and Spotify. Thank you very much for listening. I'm your host, Imogen A. Rate. I hope you have a safe and healthy week, and I look forward to bringing you another episode next Sunday.